Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for you. I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. This week, we are looking at the first reading for the first Sunday of Lent, February 21st, 2021, which takes us to Genesis 9, verses 8 to 17. And Tim is up this week for exegetical insights and preaching angles. Uh, So this is the end of the Genesis flood story when God gives the rainbow as a sign that God won't flood the earth again, right? Yes. Now I'm looking at the date. I'd never noticed that it's 221 <laughs> It's hard to say, isn't yes. it? Nice. I like that. <laughs> but yes, this is the rainbow story. And it's, it's really a lovely little moment. And if people know anything about the flood story in Genesis, they probably know about the rainbow at the end. Yeah, it's kind of funny to get this passage like that because it's like getting the the last chapter of a book without getting any of the previous stuff. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But with the story of Noah, that's a pretty well-known one. And especially, like you said, the rainbow piece. So what do you think? Anything fresh that preachers could bring to a sermon on this passage? Yeah, I mean, what I want to say about this might not be new to preachers who've studied this text before, but I think that most lay people have probably never stopped to think about what the rainbow in this passage actually means. Mm, Yeah, I know where you're going with this. This is a good one. I bet you do. But let me back up just a step to simply recall how violent the flood story is. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's kind of a shame that Noah's Ark has been so co-opted as a cute, cuddly story about a kind old man with a floating zoo. (laughs) When you actually read the story, it's horrifying. It's about a violent God responding to the violence of humanity with violent judgment, destroying adults and children and all living creatures with a traumatic, horrible disaster. I mean, we rightly mourn a pandemic in our own day that has cost the lives of a significant but nevertheless small fraction of the human population. But this story, in our Bible, by God's hand, A disaster wipes out like 99.9% of all humanity, of of all earthly life. And only one dysfunctional family is spared to start over. I know. And I always feel like, why couldn't you have picked a functional family? But that's a unicorn. (laughs) Right, right. And um, I think it's important to note that this violence isn't just a projection of modern morality back onto the ancient text, as we sometimes do, rightly or wrongly. In this case, the violence is explicit. The story begins back in chapter 6 with this divine reflection, beginning in verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw that the earth was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted its ways upon the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Now I am going to destroy them along with the earth. That word violence that gets repeated there is the Hebrew word Hamas, which carries the sense of both physical and ethical harm done, just like our English word violence does, being related to the word violate. So violence is the nature of the corruption And overwhelming violence is God's solution to it. Yeah, I once heard a scholar who wrote a book on the violence of God who talked about um, God gets violent because when God 
comes into relationship with human people, God gets human stuff all over <laughs> him. <laughs> and I kind of like that in a certain way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that can be kind of an uncomfortable portrayal of God, especially um, when we're always trying to defend the Old Testament as not being the violent, angry God. And then you get texts like this, mm. right? Yeah. And, you know, this this isn't the only way that God is described in the Bible. But it's here nonetheless. And I think preachers make a mistake if they ignore such characterizations of God when they're plainly there in the text. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, from a literary perspective, this violence in, in the flood story on the part of humanity and on the part of God is setting something up in the story, a tension in the story that's paid off in our text, the, the text mm -hmm. in whatever chapter one, in Genesis 9. <laughs> So there's a development or there's like, yeah, there's an unresolved tension that is is some way resolved by this rainbow is what you're saying, right? Yes. And, and right here is the insight that a lot of lay people just don't know about. This image of God as a violent deity who doles out judgment in the form of storms and floods is a typical image of Mesopotamian deities, especially Enlil, Marduk, Baal, Hadad. All those who were characterized as storm gods, or perhaps variations on a single storm god. These gods were warriors, and the wind and hail and lightning and floodwaters were imagined as weapons of war. So the picture of God in Genesis is a god waging war against a violent humanity with the weapons of weather fits that profile quite well, right up until we get to Genesis 9:11. And this is what is so cool about this passage. The rainbow is not just something pretty to look at. Here, it's a visual representation of God's bow, the divine archer's weapon against humanity. In fact, the passage never uses a separate word for it, like our English rainbow. It's always simply keshet, the bow, the, the weapon. So when in verse 13, God says, I have set my bow in the clouds, it's God's way of saying, I've hung up my weapon forever. I'm declaring peace toward humanity and making a formal declaration, a covenant with creation. It's such an interesting story in that way, because we don't hear any more about God's affect, God's emotion after that first part where God says, I am grieved for having created humanity. But there's something intimated by this first thing that God does, that the first thing that God does after this act of overwhelming violence is to hang up a weapon and to, to step away from it. It's sort of a stepping away from that trope of what it means to be divine in the ancient Near East, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, in a way. I mean... The, the flood story is still there in all its horror, but in that aftermath, God changes. And at least mm -hmm. that part of God's profile is retired. Never again, says mm -hmm. God. This way of relating to the creation is done with forever. Yeah. The first covenant of the Bible is a covenant about how God will no longer be in relationship with humanity, which is as violent in a certain way. Exactly. Yeah, it's interesting that the language of covenant is used here. Covenants come from the sort of political, legal realm of thought. 
They're these formal arrangements that are entered into by various constituencies like contracts, pacts, treaties, <laughs> relationships even, like marriage or adoption. Those are kinds mm -hmm. of covenants. And coming from the scribal world, where covenants were wordsmithed, the Bible has all sorts of covenant language. Um, but this <laughs> here is the first one. Um, it, it lacks some of the formal structures of other covenants that preachers might be familiar with from seminary classes or from commentaries. This is really simple and unilateral. It's a commitment that God makes without a bunch of requirements for humanity. Really, it's more like a, like a pledge than anything else, I think. But like other covenants, it has a physical sign, a memorial that stands as a perpetual reminder of the covenant. Only this one isn't a stone monument or a stela or a set of tablets or some exchange of costly gifts. The sign of this covenant is the bow in the clouds. Yeah, that's really neat. I'd never thought about that before, um, that it's a sign of the covenant, not for humanity, but for God. It's a sign for God. Yeah, God's the one who sees the bow in the clouds and responds. <laughs> it's, it's sort of like when God gets all riled up and starts to roil the clouds together for storm war. That, that bow <laughs> appears and reminds God to chill out. Mm -hmm. But, um, of course, people see the bow too. And I think this is meant to be a text of comfort, that when we see the bow, we should be reminded that God has declared peace. That's really beautiful. I heard a song this Christmas which took the... Um the battle hymn of the Republic, you know, the and they slowed it down and they completely substituted the words. And, um, and the, the point of the whole song that they kept repeating over and over again was God's peace will unite us. Mm. So it's a battle hymn that they, they put peace into and and this sort of this sort of reminds me of that in some ways. I think that's a really powerful sermon angle too for for this moment. Yeah, I I think that that's at least part of a sermon angle for sure. I think the fact that um that you know we know how rainbows work by re <laughs> refracting sunlight through water droplets. I don't think that takes anything away from the the sort of theological potency of this story for us. Whenever we see a rainbow, we also can be reminded that God's attitude toward us, God's covenanted commitment toward us is peace, just like that song. Mm. God has mm. put away weapons and meets us instead with grace and love, which is, you know, that's, that's a powerful theological statement. So that's, that's part of your sermon angle, right? What's the other part? Oh, uh, yeah. So I, I, uh, I sort of jumped over it till now, but the text makes it clear by repeating it several times that... This commitment, this pledge that God's making is not just with humanity. It's also with the birds and the livestock and the wild animals and all flesh and the earth itself. So for all the ways that Genesis speaks of the you know, specialness of humanity within creation, this passage emphasizes our common lot with all of creation. We are creatures just as much as any wild animal or blade of grass. And our fate is tied up with the well-being of that creation, a creation toward which God has pledged peace. Mm -hmm. So this is a great passage to use for a sermon that highlights our union with creation and our responsibility to care for it. Very nice. Well, I sure do hope uh, preachers... You're going to call them creatures, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, probably. Dear creatures. Preacher preachers. 
to your creature that preachers. <laughs> so, creature preachers, take Tim up on this. Preach this text and um, preach about how peace, God's peace unites us. Um, what a beautiful message for right now. Thanks, Tim. No problem. Well, folks, we hope you enjoyed this. If you are looking for uh, maybe some Bible study material and you want to see if we've covered a text, we have a nifty little search bar function on our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. You can go and check out. Um, You can also uh, find us on Facebook. Maybe give us a like, give us share when we uh, post our new episodes from week to week. Best of luck this Lent. Um, We know that this is a busy time for you all and we'll be thinking about you as you uh, go into one of your busy seasons. But until next time, I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. We'll see you next time.